Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Lucille McCart, welcome to The Mentor. Thank you for I having love me. the name Lucille. Like, it's a <laughs> cool name we were talking about earlier. Um, there's not many people I've ever met whose name's Lucille and I always think to myself, maybe your parents are watching Lucille Ball all the time or doing something. Uh, um, you mentioned B.B. King, um, the, the song, but uh, it's a name that for me anyway, if I meet someone with a name like that, I never forget them just because of the name, if, if nothing else. It's such an unusual name. You got a lot to live up to with that name. Well, yeah, my parents were definitely I Love Lucy fans, but it served me well, I think, being the the only Lucille kicking around in a lot of the industries that I've been in. We'll talk about Bumble in a moment. Um, I'm really curious to know what led up to you getting involved in an organisation like Bumble. I started my career in PR agencies. Uh, I worked at two different agencies over the course of nearly 10 years and I had such an incredible experience there working on brands that I never would have got the opportunity to do if I'd been in in in-house roles. I worked on brands like Priceline, Specsavers, Moom Champagne, Westpac, you know, really big diverse range of industries as well. That really, I think, understood, um, gave me a really good understanding of different businesses. Um, I worked for telcos, I worked for beauty companies, I worked for all sorts of things in that time. And then probably about uh, eight years in to my career, maybe a bit less, Bumble became a client of mine. Um, and I embarked on what essentially turned out to be a two-year job interview um, where I was leading the account at Houseman was the agency that I worked at. It was early 2017 when I first started and at that time no one had really heard much about Bumble. Dating apps were still kind of new um, and the idea of a woman making the first move on a dating app was, you know, at best seen as a bit gimmicky and at worst seen as just, you know, something that people would never do and really fighting against the traditional gender roles that people were quite comfortable in. Um, And so for about two years, I worked really closely with the team here that was very small and the global um, communications team. And then uh, I I was really fortunate to be offered a job about three years ago working in the Australia team um, and haven't looked back. When you said that you work for big brands. I mean, what what would you say to somebody who's at least just trying to get into communications or PR comms? Yeah. Houseman, is that a big firm? It was quite big. The agency I started at was called Map and Page and that was much smaller. 
Um, and that was absolutely like the best possible thing I could have done because when you're in a small team, you are sitting across the table from your director, you're hearing the conversations that they have, you're exposed to every single level of the business. You have a lot, you have to pull your weight a lot. There's very little room to hide in those kind of small team environments, but you learn quick and you get exposed to what every other person is doing. And I think that's so valuable. Um, so definitely starting small and then slowly working my way into bigger organizations, I think really set me up for success. What skill are you gaining? Is it about, is it people skills or is it how to best amplify the brand that you're working for? What are the skills that you're picking up? I think there's definitely all of those, but it's also things like language. You get to understand the type of language they use, the way they communicate, how that language might shift from talking to a client, talking to a journalist. And I think such an important part of PR that is often overlooked is the skills that it takes to deal with journalists, as I'm sure you would understand as someone that deals with the media, it is a really specialist skill. And I think it probably a lot of the time PR is considered a lot of soft skills or it's considered, you know, more of a frivolous industry, but, um, you know, journalists can smell fear on you from a mile away. Or bullshit. You know, or, yeah, exactly. And they'll call you out on it and they'll tell you. And, you know, I definitely had a few, um, my most memorable is when I spoke to someone from the, um, Gold Coast Bulletin and I pitched them something when I was, I would have been like 21 or 22. And the, he was like, yeah, great. I'll put it in the Sunday edition. And I was so proud of myself, hung up the phone, told my boss, oh, it's going to go in the Sunday paper. And she was like, they don't, they don't publish on Sundays. <laughs> so <laughs> I learned very quickly to, you know, detect when you're being, you know, taken for a ride as well, but you just, you have to learn how to communicate really effectively because a journalist will shut you down, they'll ignore you, they'll tell you you're an idiot and oftentimes you are being an idiot. So you learn those kind of things really quickly working in PR and I think when you're exposed to like more senior people and the way they're dealing with those conversations, both with clients and with journalists, you just absorb so much of that and I think it's the language, the communication style, all of that stuff that you're otherwise left to work out on your own and that's why I feel like, you know, there's so much value in office culture. I feel really, really bad for, you know, people who are starting their careers working from home because you don't get any of that exposure. And I think there's so much value in it. That's really, that's that's a really good, good point. And I've been pondering about that myself in relation to my other businesses. Um, the, the learning culture that you get out of working in an environment, sitting across from someone, Something it seems as basic, but by the, by the way, is absolutely fundamental. It's just learning language. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in your case, you're building a bridge between what a medium or a media might write or film or say about your client, which helps your client's brand get in front of their audience. That's sort of what it was when you did exactly. Back so you need to understand the language of your client. You need to translate that into the language of the journalist or the media that you're talking to and you need to be able to hassle enough hard enough but at the same time not so much that you piss them off yeah exactly you know, there's a fine line there's a fine line <laughs> and uh especially if you're young and um um naive um you, you can get played pretty hard yeah because the bottom line is the journalists are sitting there getting a hundred press releases a day probably those yeah, days by exactly. fax or something yeah. um or online just an email they, they they can't be stuffed reading all this stuff. I mean, they 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 know they're all getting what they what they bring to the table. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as well, you know, back in the day, we were 
like when I first started, having phone calls was so valuable, you know, picking up the phone and talking to people. And it is nigh on impossible to get a Gen Z person to pick up the phone these days. But there is so much value in talking to people. You know, you get so much more out of someone's tone of voice. You know, someone can say something over the phone and you learn five more things than you did if they said that over email. So I think there's like so much value in talking to people, having that communication and even things like seeing how your boss deals with legal and finance and all the other different parts of the business that you hear those conversations, you see the way they deal with those, you see how they problem solve, you know, and I think the the challenge with this working from home environment that a lot of people are coming up in now is none of that stuff is visible. And I think there's so much value in that visibility. And that's what I had so much of in my early career that really helped me. Your role as head of APAC for Bumble today, like what, what things do you still fall back on? I think work ethic for sure. When you're in a small team that has a large remit, you there is no room, there's nowhere to hide. You have to really pull your weight and show your value. And it taught me unbelievable work ethic and also like the ability to get excited about what you're doing and feel passionate. And I think PR is one of those amazing industries where you really get to see the output of your work. And it's very clear whether you succeeded or failed because your story lands or it doesn't. I think that you people drop out of the PR industry in the early years a lot because that is either for you or not for you. You know, that that is either something that excites you or something that terrifies you. And that's just a personality thing. So I think that work ethic was so valuable. I also think um, communication, like we just discussed, like how you use language to communicate with different types of people, how you adapt that to different environments. And then those problem solving skills when you don't have a lot of resources, which is something that has definitely um, benefited me being at Bumble, being in this region, when you don't have a lot of resources, when you don't have a strategy team and a creative team and a designer and all those kind of things, you have to wear all those hats yourself. And so it really taught me how to be creative, how to think outside the box and how to you know, do many different roles at once and juggle all those different things. And then when you went to work for House with a bigger organisation, did that largely leave you with a big, a whole lot of confidence in yourself? Like, um, because... Oh, yeah, I was very confident from the moment I walked in there, probably overly so. But, well, yeah, t- talk about that because, like, I think that's really important. Confidence is... Confidence in what you think you can do after being exposed to big names, big brands, like you said, Westpac, et cetera. Like yeah. They're big brands and they're demanding and, you know, they, they spend big dollars. You deal with important people in those environments. It's, it's, a big, it's a big obligation and responsibility to do the right thing by them. You know, you can stuff their brand up in a second and, like, they will come down on you like a ton of bricks. Like, you know, you can, you can ruin a business pretty quickly. What level of confidence did you get out of being in those sorts of organisations and how did you carry that into Bumble? It- gives you a sense of confidence if you can be trusted to go into a meeting with a marketing lead at Westpac and give your opinion on something and do it well. I'm sure if it goes badly, then you probably have a different experience to what I have. But when the people that you work for give you that level of trust, then that gives you a sense of confidence that carries through into other things. So I had that experience at the first agency that I worked with and then I went into Houseman with only a few years' experience but with an enormous amount of confidence in my ability because I'd had that positive reinforcement and I had that experience that you do get in PR of being validated by seeing the proof of your work. There's not a lot of industries where you get that immediate proof of your work you know, I went into my next role with a lot of confidence to, you know, walk into the CEO's CEO's office and 
say hi and tell her about myself and build a relationship and talk about, you know, what I was interested in and what I wanted to do. And I don't think you always have that, but it's really valuable when you can build that confidence. Yeah, that's an interesting point you just made about quick gratification in terms of output or results. So as you say, if I employ you, you're, you and you assume you're a PR firm and I employ you to promote my brand and you, you get it in the front page of the financial review or something like that and you present that to me, that's quick early gratification. When you think about how tough the PR industry can be, which often mm. doesn't get spoken about, but you've got clients who often are putting a lot of pressure on you, um, maybe aren't always, you know, that happy with the work that you're doing or really want to see results quickly. And then on the other side, you've got the media who also hate you a little bit, you know, so you're in this kind of sandwich of a high pressure environment. So that quick gratification or that instantaneous results or that, you know, almost immediate results is really important. That's the payoff. That's why people do it because if you were in that kind of environment where you've got a client who might hate you, a journalist who might hate you, like the benefit of that is being able to see the the value and be able to prove the value of what you've done fairly quickly. I don't think that you would find a lot of people in a profession like that if you didn't have that ability to see the results of your labour as as quickly and as visibly as what as what you do in PR. Did you ever have a, a Ruby Princess moment like where – if you remember the Ruby Princess, the ship came in here. Imagine being the PR person for that um, that ship during you know a period when it, it basically introduced COVID into Australia. <laughs> as a result of the government stuffing things up, and you know not not openly, but you know, and then you had, imagine if you had to look after the Ruby Princess as the PR organisation. Did you ever have an impossible period when you with any of your clients? You don't need to name the client, but where it's sort of like whatever way I go, I'm going backwards here. Yeah, I never had anything on the scale of the Ruby Princess. No, probably touch, no one ever has. Touch wood. I think that's exceptional, but I always have a um, internal moment of silence for the PR person whenever I see anything happening like that because I know that they're they're caught in a bit of a shit sandwich, probably. Yep. Uh, but I feel like there is a real skill in understanding in a situation like that. Um, you know, sometimes it is there is a lot to communicate, and sometimes there is nothing to communicate. And in those crises, it's about trying to find the balance of we need to show up, we need to be visible, um, but we need to understand what people actually want to hear from us. And sometimes it's nothing, you know, sometimes if you don't, if you can't add value to a conversation, sometimes it's your job to sit back and, you know, assess when the appropriate moment is to comment on something, what action needs to be taken. You know, it's, it's not always um, best to rush into responding to something like that, like if we use that example, um, it's highly unlikely anyone had all the facts, you know, straight away. So those are really difficult situations to be managing because the last thing you want to do is put out a statement, have it end up being incorrect. And then you've gone on the record and said one thing, and then you need to change it to another. So I think there's a real skill in sort of being able to instinctually, um, you know, with, with all of this, the knowledge that you have of the industry to know, when to say something, when to not, what the appropriate thing is going to say because what your client wants to say versus what the media wants to hear are usually very different things. And so it's a huge challenge to walk the line between those two objectives. And it, it's sort of like you've got to be a psychologist too to some extent because you've got to try – in that example, you might have to just try and slow things down, um, you know, and and how do you calm the farm when it comes to the media who are just trying to jump all over something? Yeah. 
and also calm your client, put your client in a position where they think, well, hang on, we've got some control here. You have to become like a psychologist of the two parties, either side. Absolutely. And I think with the media, with stories like that, especially, there is so much, you know, that can get out of control so quickly in terms of, you know, people that they can get quotes from, different people they can speak. Like it can just, as it did, into a huge media story that, that, you know, completely takes over everything that, like the news cycle. Yeah. And so it's it's really challenging in those situations and I don't think PR people always get enough credit because there's usually a legal person involved as yep. well. <laughs> um, you know, there's always in those situations a host of people that want to contribute and it's the job of a communications professional to then distill all those different perspectives into one externally facing message that is also going to satisfy the demands of the media, which is a whole other consideration. So, you know, if you're a communications professional in that in that situation, you have to understand the legal position. You have to understand the regulatory position. You have to understand all of those different things, but then also be able to communicate back to those people what's expected from a journalist or what's expected from the media. And that that's not always easy. It sounds like, you know, in those in those environments, you sort of have to be like an interpreter an interpreter and a translator at the same yes. time. <laughs> Exactly, yeah, exactly you're doing both, it. Yeah. and you're interpreting. Then you're translating into someone else's language. You're interpreting from this left to the go to the right. And what, what I found very interesting, I'm quite curious about this. When Bumble was presented to you by your firm as a client, but they're a startup in Australia. Um, there's um, and but it's not a new environment. I mean, you know, dating apps were around, but Bumble's proposition or hypothesis was different to the other apps. Did you ever think to yourself, hmm, "That's interesting." Um, I really dig this organisation. I mean, what did you? What was the first thought you had when they presented you to you with you, their hypothesis or their theory about how they're going to their model, their business model? Yeah, I remember at the time dating apps were thought to be really sleazy, um, and I'd had a few like I was single at the time, and I still am, but um, had used competitor apps and, you know, not had a great experience. So when my boss first said, well, we've got a dating app coming in, I was like, oh, no, thank you. <laughs> and then they were like, oh, it's Bumble. Um, this is their story. I was like, oh, okay, that's a completely different, that's totally different to, um, you know, anything that I've had any experience with. And my, um, I think, strength at the time was that I had worked with a lot of um, women-led brands. I'd worked in a lot of beauty and fashion and retail clients. So I had a really good understanding of the female consumer. And I thought that's really interesting because everything that I've seen from the dating industry seems to be targeted at men. You know, those you know, pop-up ads you used to get mm. back in the day, like meet singles in your area, mm. you know, that was not targeted. None of that was targeted at women. So I, I remember thinking it was really interesting. And then I remember the first few conversations that I had with journalists kind of getting a bit shut down and being a bit and being like, oh, I wonder why they think this is a gimmick or I wonder why they don't seem to think that this is something that is a long-term solution to the the challenge that the dating industry had. And obviously that has changed a lot since then. But this was also pre-Me Too, pre-Time's Up, pre, you know, all of those things that really change the world that we operate in. Um, so I think that was a really interesting experience for me. It was the first time that I thought something was great and that I hit and I, having worked with so many big brands and thinking and having so many relationships in the media and thinking this is great and then actually hitting some 
some challenges. That was the first time that had really happened to me. How did the Bumble offer come about? Yeah, I mean, it was it wasn't a formal um, interview process or anything like that. But like I said, the role I would, was doing was almost like a year and a half, two year interview because by the time it came around, I knew the team so well, they knew me so well um, that when that conversation popped up, you know, would you ever consider working here? I was like, I feel like I already do (laughs) in a way, you know, it was, you know, we talk in this sort of industry a lot about taking risks. That was the most calculated risk that I could have taken because I knew as much as you can know about a team, like, you know, when you are normally interviewing for a job, you, you meet those, spend a couple of hours with those people. You're really taking a guess that your perceptions of them are accurate. Whereas I'd spent a year and a half or more working with this team. So I knew them really well, as well as you can know someone going into it. And then vice versa. Exactly. Yeah. They, they knew you yeah. too. So your, your first job, by the way, mum was head of comms or something like that. I actually started as a senior marketing manager. Senior marketing manager. Um, working across obviously our communication strategy, but then events and influencers and partnerships as well, which is something that, you know, you do a lot of in PR agencies anyway. Very few people that work in PR are just publicists. You yep. know, there's all these other things that come under that as well. So um, it wasn't a, you know, hardcore marketing role in this of like, you know, a lot of advertising. It was a lot of below the line tactics. And then I became the um, country lead. And then I sort of switched back into a communications role, like a pure communications role as we kicked off our Asia expansion. When you first went across to that, to that organization, they were relatively speaking small and new to the Australian marketplace. Yeah. I think when I, I started there in January, 2019 and there was three people on the team. Huh. Yeah. What did you think about the risk associated with it? Do you think you say, oh, this might not make it? I mean, will it, I mean, I like the hypothesis, but it's got to be tested, properly tested, and it's got to build traction. I mean, what, what are the thoughts going through your head when you move from a big PR firm with big clients and been around a long time like Housemans are, have um, to moving into an environment where it's small startup effectively, you know, risk Yeah, I mean, the team here that had built it up until that time that I'd been working with had done so much and had done such great work that I wasn't necessarily ever kind of thinking this isn't going to work. I really believed that it was. But what was the biggest difference is when you are in an agency environment, you're very much on a track. You know, I was an account director. I knew if I stayed there for two more years, I would be a senior account director or a group account director. And if I stayed there for a longer than it would be a general manager or these kind of roles. Like it's very much mapped out for you. And I think leaving that kind of environment that's very structured and joining a team of three people where the the runway above you is pretty open, you know, that was to me what was the kind of scary thing where it's like I have no way, like when I started there three years ago, I had no idea on earth that I would end up in the job that I'm in now. The The runway was, you know, very open but, you know, kind of, very unclear what it would lead to and, you know, what it might lead to in the future in terms of what your next job might be. Whereas I previously before that had been very much on that agency track. I was in agency roles. I would, you know, thinking about my next move would be what other agency I'm going to work for. Whereas now it would be like, well, now I've kind of blown that up. Like it could kind of be anything. And it was actually a conversation during my resignation that made me ironically feel the best about it because when I went and told my boss, Judy Houseman, what I was going to do, she was like, oh, that's perfect for you. 
You know, that makes so much sense. Obviously she didn't want me to leave because we were really close and we'd worked together for six years. But her giving me that validation really helped me be like, well, you know, that unclear runway actually is exciting. Um, and, yeah, it's it's ended up pretty well for me. So we just got to break and come back. But I, I do want to talk to you about the the underlying context of what Bumble does. I, I, I want to flesh that out a bit if you don't mind. Yeah. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Let's just lay out just right now what Bumble's proposition is. So our mission as a global dating organization is to help facilitate healthy and equal relationships. And the way that we do that is by creating a product where in opposite gender matches, women make the first move. So on Bumble, if a man and a woman match, the woman has to make the first move before the conversation can be initiated. And Taking a step back to the why, as we mentioned before, Bumble was launched pre-Me Too, pre-Times Up, pre-this social movement. And what happened was our CEO and founder, Whitney Wolfherd, had worked at a, in another dating company um, and she left there and she experienced a lot of um, online trolling after she departed that business and she really saw the ugly side of the internet. So she was spending a lot of time thinking, how do I create a kind, respectful place on the internet? And then also thinking about, you know, with her experience in the dating industry, what needs to change? And, you know, her insight was she knew so many smart, successful women who were fighting the gender pay gap, who were really making strides in equality in their professional lives, but would go to a bar after work and wait for a man to approach them or wait for a man they're talking to to ask for their number, wait for them to ask them out on a date. And she just thought, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> you know, I want to flip that on its head. I want to make it so that women have to make the first move. And I want to see how that changes the nature of a first conversation because a lot of the problems on dating apps are unwanted messages and that kind of harassment. And so it was like, how can we change 
that from the starting point and see what what difference that makes. And so that was kind of how the idea was born. And then we kind of came along at the same time that this real social movement was happening. So I think if you're thinking about it from a business point of view, whether you're thinking about dating, whether you're thinking about food and beverage, whether you're in home, whatever industry you're in, where she really found success was identifying a problem and trying to work out the best way to fix it. So I think if you're thinking about wanting to disrupt an industry, it's really thinking about, well, what is the problem? What is the problem to solve? What's the tension point? How can we, how can I play a part in resolving that? Yeah, so w- what was the problem? Because, I mean, the broader problem is you know, how do I meet somebody, male or female, to each other? But below that there's a subset of, an, of another problem, um, and that is, as you said, trolling and unwanted messages and, um, you know, just things which lack consent or invitation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've invested a lot in our safety features um, and have some of the leading safety features in the industry. So we have photo verification. We have a feature called private detector that automatically blurs. um, It uses AI to notify you if they think you've been sent a lewd image and it blurs it. So you have the option to view that or not view that or report it or you know, it's really targeted at non-consensual image sharing. If it's if it's consensual, yep. you can do whatever you would like. Um, so we've invested a lot in their safety features, but that sort of harassment, that trolling, that was sort of one part of it. But I think at the essence of what was happening then and what is still happening now to a degree and why Bumble still has such an important role in culture and in the industry is I think we are having these huge debates and making huge change in gender roles in so many parts of life. But a lot of us are still stuck with really traditional attitudes when it comes to dating. Um, We're still having conversations around who should pay for the first date, you know, who should ask someone out, you know. And we still are trapped in a lot of really gendered thinking when it comes to how relationships start. You know, we um, did a piece of research recently and I think something like 88% of Australians value equality in relationships, but they believe that because of the the gendered nature of, you know, roles in relationships, that is hard to achieve. Like, you know, those those gender roles really get in the way of achieving equality in relationships and how equal your relationship is starts from the very beginning. You know, you establish those role, the roles that you play in a relationship very early on. So think about things like, for example, um, it, there's still a lot of stigma around um, men that might want to be stay-at-home dads, for example, and women that want to be the the income earner that doesn't stay at home with the kids. Um, and that's probably getting a bit further down the line into relationships, but I think it speaks a lot to, you know, our research that I just mentioned also spoke to the fact that men still feel a lot of pressure to be the high-income earner in a relationship because the psychology behind that is that they still view the masculine role in a relationship as being the breadwinner, earning the money, taking care of the family. And in an age where, you know, women are experiencing so much success professionally, it actually doesn't make sense that the man still needs to be the breadwinner. What we're trying to do is even the table, but there is a huge tension point that comes to when when you do that professionally, but you still have these very gendered social and personal roles, you know, that creates a lot of conflict in interpersonal relationships. So that's the problem that we're trying to solve is trying to say there are actually no rules. There are no rules that says women have to do this and men have to do this. You can do 
it's up to you how you want to live your life. You set the rules. Yeah, you set the rules. But in your case, the woman, because I haven't, I, I'm going to be honest, I've never been on the on That's okay. any of the dating sites. <laughs> so, so, but if if we go back to the very first one, very very first thing you said, uh, who pays for the first date, for example? Um, putting aside people who fit in a certain age group like me who just have a tr- traditional view because that's what I've never really thought about it because I haven't had to exercise my mind around it. You Generally speaking, the guy paid for the first date, I mean, just generally speaking, right? But I, I don't know why, but just, that's just a traditional thing that would be in my head. But how does Bumble address those sorts of things right at the very beginning? Yeah, I think the psychology behind women making the first move on Bumble is about what change does that make to the conversation and if the woman is put in the what is traditionally the role of the man how does she do that how does she you know choose to start a conversation how does that then impact the way that you get to know each other and the dynamics of that relationship because what it's doing is it's flipping the traditional gender dynamics in reverse and then sort of leaving it up to those two people to then say well we've we've kind of already done it differently to how tradition would expect so then everything else can be done differently as well it's giving them license to do that so it's, it's, it's sort of really creating optionality yeah at the beginning and you can option in or opt in or opt out yeah. of, of of whatever the rules are yeah. so i i get that that makes sense to me and can you give me a, a sense then of bumble's education obligation to your users both male and female we have something called the bumble pledge so when you first download the app when you're setting up your profile before you can do anything, it asks you to agree to our pledge, which lists our brand values, which are kindness, respect, equality, and inclusivity. And it basically asks you to take the pledge to say, by using this app, I agree to uphold these values. Um, So that's from the very first interaction that you have with the product. And then throughout our marketing and our campaigns, the research that I just mentioned formed a really big part of um, a campaign we just ran Um, in March called The Romance Gap, talking to our audience about these kind of topics and talk to them about how, you know, that kind of conversation that we're having of there are other ways to develop relationships and there there are no rules. There are, you know, that feeling the romance gap is like how we view what happens in relationships in the same way as how the gender pay gap plays out professionally, the romance gap is what happens in relationships when people don't have equal footing. Um, And I think that the biggest thing about equality between um, gender is understanding that traditional, the traditional way of doing things, you know, there's a lot of dialogue out there about how that impacts women, but it negatively impacts men as well, because any scenario where you tell people they have to behave in a certain way or fit in a certain box limits them. Um, And there are some men out there who might be totally fine with the traditional way of doing things and there are some women who are totally fine with that as well. It's not about saying everyone has to do it this way. It's about saying there are women who want something different and there are men that want something different as well. So it's up to you. You you have the ability to build the type of life and the type of relationships that you want. You're, you're saying that Bumble actually runs campaigns. So yeah. So you've just done the, uh, the Romance Gap game, yeah. cam- campaign. I presume you're going to do research and you come back and you say this is our findings and this is the interpretation of the research and, um, you know, we're sharing it with you. It's part of our 
pledge anyway. Um, do you do this like monthly or how often do you have to do these? We run these kind of campaigns probably two or three times a year and they're supplemented with um, the Bumble Pledge that we mentioned and in-app activ- in activity and things going up on our social channels every day that talk to these kind of topics. Like if you follow Bumble on Instagram, you'll be seeing you know, IGTV reels, static posts, all these kind of things that talk about these kind of topics and encourage that dialogue with our audience um, about all these exact things that that we said. And is that your role? Is that part, that comes under part part of your role? Yeah, absolutely. We have um, a lot bigger teams now than when I started. So we have people that look after our social channels and big marketing teams who are responsible for all this output. But what is really important role for the comms team to play in Bumble and in any organisation is making sure that we're consistently messaging the same thing to our audience so they hear the same thing from us all the time and that corporate brand and that consumer brand stay consistent. So when you worked in PR, you were able to get early gratification. You could get to see a publication talking about your client, your client's brand I should say, as a result of your client's request and you know, therefore the client's happy to pay the retainer. Um, what is your measure of success now at Bumble then? Uh, what, what do you sort of lean into to see, wow, that worked? Yeah, I mean I still get what we used to call an agency the coverage high, which is that high you get from seeing, you know, your store, your brand in the newspaper or on TV or any of those things. That still is really exciting for me. But now in this role that I'm in, it's about we measure things off brand awareness, you know, how whether a campaign increased our brand awareness among Gen Z, for example, because there's a lot of Gen Z women that are starting to use dating products that weren't around for me too. You know, they were in high school, you know, they don't understand, you know, they didn't hear our original story. So it's about making, you know, have we increased brand awareness amongst people that might not have heard of Bumble? Have we also what messaging is coming through in these articles? You know, how are we getting what what is this campaign or this coverage doing for our brand? Is it um, increasing this metric? Is it sharing this message? Is it featuring couples that have met on Bumble, show, showcasing our success? Yep. All of those kind of things. And then my role now also looks at Singapore, Philippines, India, um, New Zealand, and it's different in every market as well because in a market like um, India, for example, where dating itself is a new trend you know so many um you know young people in india still meet through matchmaking services or arranged marriages um so the concept of you know people being empowered to date is new let alone using dating apps showcasing people that have met on bumble that are now engaged or married or in committed relationships is really important to proving the case for bumble whereas in australia we've kind of already established that you know, most people know someone that met their partner on Bumble. Um, so the challenge in every market is different as well. What do you have in terms of numbers now? Because, of course, you cover a lot of countries. You cover a lot of countries. But do you sort of measure the number of people who get hitched or get together? It's hard to measure as a number because um, those people leave the app, you know, after they've been on probably a few dates. Yeah. Um, so that is sort of all happening you know, unmonitored by us, you yeah. know, out in the real world, which is great. But, you know, my team gets emails at least once a week from someone saying thank you because they met their partner on Bumble or they just got engaged or sending us photos from their wedding or their hen's party or, you know, that's probably the best part of the job. Someone emailed us a couple of weeks ago saying that she 
um, was about to get in, get married. Her wedding was coming up to someone that she met on Bumble and her bridesmaid, maid of honour, was someone she met on Bumble BFF, um, you know, which is at, which is the friend finding part of our platform. So, you know, hearing those kind of stories is really bad. And there's, there's hundreds, if not thousands of them just from Australia. So countless from around the world, Bumble babies, Bumble engagements, Bumble weddings. Bumble babies. Yeah, Bumble babies. Um, or just great dates, you know, the measure of success isn't marriage. It could just be, I had a really fun date with this person. Even if they don't end up being the one for you, you had a really great experience and you added someone cool to your friendship circle. You know, the measure of success is, is so broad. Um, but I think that's what makes it really cool as well. Where's my Bumble go to from here? Yeah, I think there's always exciting things coming down the pipeline in terms of product features. One of the most significant things that we launched actually prior to the pandemic was video calls through the app. And we launched video calls as a safety feature because if you speak to someone on video, that's a very clear way to verify their identity before you go and meet up with them in person. We had no idea that we would then be about to go into a global pandemic and video calling. Oh, you did it before the pandemic? Yeah, we did it before the pandemic. So then, you know, between March 2020 and May 2020, there was a 78% increase in the number of video calls being run um, on Bumble in Australia. And I think the average length was 28 minutes. So all of a sudden that completely shifted to a virtual dating model. Um, And so people were getting into relationships by dating virtually on Bumble before they'd met in person. And that obviously I don't expect that to be sustained now that people are really excited about getting back out into the world, but virtual dating is now part of people's repertoire. So they might do a quick video call with someone before they decide to go on a, um in-person date with them as, as a good way of just measuring, you know, whether that's someone you actually want to meet. So I think there's always potential for things to happen in the world that completely shift the way that people date because dating is really just an extension of your social life and, you know, things evolve and change so quickly. But one of the most exciting evolutions coming to Bumble is um, the changes happening with Bumble BFF, um, which is grow- is a fast-growing part of our product. Um, and that grew a lot during the pandemic. Um, we saw um, a 44% increase in the volume of messages sent between women on Bumble BFF and I think 83% between men. And so that product is undergoing a bit of a evolution right now and there'll be some really exciting new features coming to BFF later this year um, because the pandemic proved more than anything how vital friendships are as well as, you know, yeah. for us it's not just about romance that is a very important part of our business and that will never change, but it's also about friendship and through BFF and professional relationships through Bumble Biz. So the idea is that Bumble can be a place where you can meet people for all parts of your life. And the exciting thing about BFF and Biz is there's no requirement to be single or dating. Those are available to everybody. And the BFF stories are honestly some of the best. You know, I spoke to someone a couple of weeks ago that had just moved to Melbourne to go to uni, didn't know anyone, got on BFF, now has a group of six friends that she does yoga with and, you know, hangs out with every weekend. And I think there is still a stigma attached to, especially in places like Australia, admitting that you don't have friends or the type Never of- Never know friends. Yeah. <laughs> no one wants to be, you know, yeah, never, never know friends. No, no, totally. 
there's such a stigma around that in the same way that five years ago, there was a stigma around wanting to meet a romantic partner online. So I think the next challenge for us is really normalizing making friends and meeting platonic friendships online. I think I reckon that's fantastic. You know, Bumble itself, um, you know, it's a dating or romance app, app uh, hopefully. Um, um, Bumble Biz, I love that idea. And I Bumble Friends, I mean, like it's, it makes sense. Um, but it's also, as you said earlier, it's about breaking all the stigmas down. And you're just sort of, take, you've gone from the, probably the biggest stigma that's meeting a romantic partner into all the other less stigmatized, but things that I never thought about, like meeting a friend. Yeah. That's cool. And also business contacts. That's a really cool one. Yeah. Bumblebiz. I like that one a lot because, you know, I deal in the business community and uh, a lot of people are just too scared to admit they have a problem they don't know the answer to. Yeah. Or, and there's always going to be someone else who's already dealt with that problem, always. And, uh, and if, if on Bumblebiz you can meet somebody who can assist you with something that you might be experiencing at the moment and, and albeit you might build a friendship out of it and, by the way, you might end up building a romance out of it too. So you go back up the ladder, yeah. back to Bumble's original um, concept. I think that's, that's – I really love it and I think that these stigmas – by the way, I might just ask you quickly, all of those other ones, uh, BFF and um, Biz, are they female-initiated? Yes. Always. Yep. yep. So women make the first move on all parts of on every part on, the, on every part of the app. Yep. And I think what's really cool about BFF and Biz, especially, is that they are geolocated in the same way as the dating app is. So, for example, if you're using um, BFF, you can find people that are living within five kilometers of you, rather than sort of casting that really wide net. Because if you want someone to go to yoga with you, you don't necessarily want someone that lives on the other side of the city um and with with biz the whole theory is it's kind of like imagine co-working spaces are so popular right now you know when and the whole benefit of you know we works and spaces and all those kind of things is you can have a bunch of startups in one place almost like an incubator biz is like the digital version of that so we're here in darlinghurst right now i could get on biz put my radius down to like five kilometers and look to match with creatives or accountants or whatever it is that I need that's down the road from me that can help me with the kind of problems you said before. And I think that's what makes it different to other products like LinkedIn, for example, which has its own benefits, but it's not meant to be a, like Biz isn't meant to be a global platform where you can meet anyone from anywhere in the world. The whole idea is that you can meet someone that is potentially next door to you. No, I get it. And I actually can sort of see why you might be pushing against LinkedIn because it can get a bit crazy on LinkedIn. I mean, I've got a big following, but I, but I get sort of hit up from everywhere around the world and it sort of kills me just I don't even read anymore. It's that, that, that's sort of busy. Yeah. And, and I think I, I like the local help, helping each other yeah. locally. I really think it's a great thing. Well, I, I, I'm actually – I've always been intrigued about Bumble um, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, Lucille. I'll never forget your name. I'll never forget <laughs> your face. And, uh, and I'll never forget this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Thank you Lucille. so much for having me. It's been great. You're most welcome. We're neighbours too, we're around the corner. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Thanks for listening to The Mentor. Audio and production is by Jess Morley. And production assistants, Jonathan Leondis. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.